Last week, Brian brought up a uh, Brennan Manning quote, a quote that, that I uh, really like and, and have wrestled with a lot, but it says this, that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and then deny him by their lifestyle. That is what the unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think there's so much truth here, but for me, there's a follow-up question that we should be asking when we hear this quote, and that is this. Why do Christians behave this way? Why can there, why is there such a disconnect between what we do here on Sunday mornings and who we are the rest of the week? And so if I can build on this quote just a little bit, I would say this, that the greatest threat to Christianity, the greatest threat to Christians in the world today is not atheism, but it's a false gospel. And this is a truth that I believe was true in the days of Jesus, was true in the days of Paul. It is true today. It will continue to be true until Jesus returns and every knee bows and every tongue confess. Have you ever stopped to consider that the most important place that the gospel is heard and either received or rejected is not here on Sunday morning. It's not in your Bible study that may take place throughout the week. It's not in the podcast or the sermons that you listen to in the car while you commute to work or while you run errands. Those are great places for the gospel to be spoken. But I would argue that the most important and the most decisive place that the gospel is spoken and either received or rejected is within our very hearts. Because what happens is that there's a battle, an ongoing battle that takes place within each and every one of us. And it's a battle between the true gospel and every other false gospel. And we are faced with moments throughout the day, each and every day, where we have to decide which of those internally is going to speak the loudest. Which of those are we going to choose to believe as truth and reject the others as lies? I'm going to get fired up today. I can feel it. <laughs> but friends, I want us to acknowledge that battle, that tension that maybe you're even having right now. And I think this is what we see in our passage Today, we're dealing with a big chunk of Mark chapter 10, so here's what I want to do. I want to break it down the way that the narrative kind of breaks down. I, will, I want to look at its three main components, the rich man, the response, and then the reaction. The rich man, the response, and then the reaction. So let's look at the rich man. We, we don't really know much about this man. We don't know his name. We don't know uh, much about him personally. We know that he was, or we call him, a rich young Ruler, But much of that is because we've taken what Matthew says and what Mark says and what Luke says. We've kind of put them all together and, and we've, we've, we've come to know him as the rich young ruler, right? This is how you know this man. And so he's called a ruler. The Greek word here refers to a leader or an official of some sort. Someone who has some sort of high administrative authority. 
And from that, we can make some inferences here that it's unlikely that he was a Roman official because typically a Roman official would not approach Jesus in this type of manner. He wouldn't approach Jesus with such a religious question. And so the rich young ruler was probably a Jewish leader in a local synagogue. It's possible that he was even a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish court that dealt with all the religious issues of Jesus's day. He was also young, and typically when the Bible talks about somebody being young, they're in their early 20s until about the age of 40. And so if you're under 40, congratulations, the Bible looks at you as young. If you're over 40, let's move on. (laughs) And he was not only rich, he was filthy rich. Luke tells us he was extremely rich. But another interesting thing that is important to look at that we're kind of going to unpack today is that this man proves that it is actually possible to ask the exact right question and the exact wrong question at the same time. And so let's dive in. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, says this, and he was, he's talking about Jesus, he was setting out on his journey and a man ran up to him. And knelt before him. And I want you to just make a mental bookmark of the posture that this man uh, comes before Jesus. He runs up to him. He kneels before him. And he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so let's break this down. First, he asks about eternal life. This is arguably one of the most important questions that any of us could ever ask. But sadly, few of us do. The chances are, if you've ever been in a crowded room of people and they're on their phones, if you were to take a quick poll, say, hey, what are you guys looking at on your phone? Not one of them would say, I'm just researching eternal life here, man. (laughs) Just seeing what the old Google says about eternal life. No, they're playing Wordle or whatever they're doing, right? And so he comes before Jesus and he asks one of the most important foundational questions that any of us can wrestle with. Hey, what? What is this eternal life thing about? But while he asks the exact right question, in the same breath, he asks the completely wrong question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want us all to understand this. The subject of his question is good. But how he approaches that that subject reveals that he is extremely confused about both Jesus' identity and his own identity. So look at what Jesus says. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And this is hugely important here. Before Jesus even gets to the subject of his question, he turns his attention on how this man addresses him. And he calls him good teacher. Now, I don't know about you, but at first glance, when I look at this, I don't see anything wrong with that. If I were to stand out in the lobby after this service and you guys were to come up to me and say, hey, good teacher, that was a great sermon. I'd be like, yeah, 
I'm going to go change my business cards, right? DJ Pittman, good teacher, right? And so we look at this through our own sinful, broken eyes, and we say, I don't see what the problem is. It seems very respectful, but there's obviously a problem with it because Jesus addresses it. He says, why do you call me good? And I think what Jesus is pointing out is the same thing that you and I at times struggle with, is he's pointing out that this man is already coming with this faulty belief system, this faulty gospel. And so if you break it down like this, I would argue the logic goes this way. Jesus is saying, if I am just a teacher, I cannot be good. Because nobody can be good except for God alone. The way that God defines goodness and holiness, nobody but God can be that. So if I am just a teacher to you, then I cannot be good and I cannot be God. But if I am, in fact, good in the way that God describes goodness, then, my friend, I have to be much more than a teacher to you. And that logic immediately should call us to critically assess our own understanding of Jesus. That, friends, if we limit Jesus to nothing but a teacher, then we will always fail to truly comprehend the true nature and depth of his goodness. And what Jesus is doing is he's inviting this man and us to embrace a true gospel that acknowledges Jesus as so much more than just a good instructor. That acknowledges his word as so much more than just healthy guidelines, but to truly see Jesus as the embodiment of divine goodness that deserves our utmost respect, reverence, worship, and awe. But it's not just Jesus' identity that this man is confused about. He's also confused about his own. How does he phrase this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's interesting is in this moment, he reveals that he is actually assigning to himself. He has taken on an identity that he actually does not possess that he looks at himself as better than he is, as more righteous than he is, and as more powerful than he is. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So now comes the response. How does Jesus respond to the question that this man is actually asking? First, he corrects him in his misidentification of Jesus and of himself, but then he's going to offer this response to his question. Verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now question, does this seem weird to you? Does Jesus' answer to this question see a little off 
to you? Maybe it's just me, but I look at this and I say, okay, we just talked about how this man's question was wrong because he's seeking all the things that he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' response is, well, here's all the things that you can do to inherit eternal life. So something seems wrong, which doesn't mean Jesus is wrong. It means then my interpretation is wrong. So let's unpack what is Jesus actually doing here? Why does he respond by listing out some of these commandments. And I would say this, that Jesus is using the law in the way that it was always intended to be used. Jesus is using the commandments the way that they always were intended to be used. Now, here's where this message starts to get really challenging for us. I believe that the law of God was given to us not to set a bar for us to try to reach, but to be the ultimate revealer for our sin. So that we can have an accurate view of who we really are. I believe that the reason the law was given was not okay Here's what you have to do. Go and do it. And if you can master it, if you can figure it out, then congratulations. No, I believe the law was given to reveal how completely dependent we are on something that is not ourselves. And church, I would say it this way because I think one of the hardest things especially depending on where you've come from, what your religious background is, what your home life was, one of the hardest things for us to overcome is accepting the truth that our problem, our biggest problem, is not our performance. It's our nature. Our biggest problem, our biggest hindrance in the Christian life, is not our performance. The message that you are not to accept is go out there, try better, do better, try harder, and maybe you'll get it. No, the message that the gospel makes very clear to us is our problem. The wickedness of our heart is not how good we are. It is who we are. It is our very Nature, but so many of us struggle in the same way that this man did. We have this distorted identity that tends to look at ourselves as not as bad as we really are. And what we do is we justify ourselves. We puff up our very own identity by picking out those that our society and our culture would say is worse than us. And we say, well, they're really bad, so I'm not that bad. But what Jesus' response is trying to accomplish is he's actually answering a question that this man wasn't even asking, but is his very problem. He's trying to get his identity into an accurate view of what it really is. And to put himself up against God's law, 
he should be able to see that he falls short. And to realize, hey, the bad news of the gospel is your very nature. But Jesus wants him to realize that so that he can be overwhelmed by the good news of the gospel. Paul realizes this, and he talks about this in Romans chapter 5. He says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. And that doesn't mean, hey, the law came so that you guys could be more messed up. No, the law came so that you would realize how messed up you are. But then look what it says. But where sin increased, church, grace increased all the more. Hear that. Where you and I realize how much we have fallen short, where you and I get an accurate view of who we really are that we could never measure up, God says, it's okay, I got you. My grace increases all the more so that as sin reigned in death, church, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through you, no, through Jesus. Our problem is not our performance. It is our nature. We are the greatest of sinners. Church, we are created creatures that do not seek submission under the creator. We seek equality with the creator. And what makes God's word living and active and sharp is when we approach it with surrender and open-handedness and humility and submission, what happens is it brings our identity back into an accurate view of who we are. And out of that accuracy, we truly get to experience the Holy Spirit's work. Because what then happens is the Holy Spirit then leads us into conviction And out of that conviction is born grief. That in the same way that our sin grieves the Father, it should grieve us. But it doesn't let us stay there. In that grief, the Spirit very gently, very powerfully leads us to the foot of the Savior. And says, I got you. Where sin increased... Grace increased even more. But so many times, that internal battle just rages on. And these false gospel narratives that we so easily cling to just seem to get louder and louder. And they keep us from experiencing the process that the Holy Spirit wants to invite us into. That's what, for me, makes this man's response so sad. Let's look how he responds. Mark chapter 10, verse 20. And the man said to Jesus, teacher. Now notice, just for a second, how he addresses Jesus at this point. He doesn't say good teacher anymore. He says teacher. Now if I can go back just just for a second... Remember what the logic, how did our logic go? Jesus says, hey, if I'm just a teacher, I can't be good, I can't be God. But if I am good, then I am God and I have authority. Which one does he buy into? He says, teacher. 
Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, he looks at him and he loves him. There's a lot there about the character of God that even in our most arrogant states, even in our most prideful convictions, even when we assign an identity that's greater and more powerful and more sovereign than it actually is, Jesus looks on us with love. And he says to him, you lack one thing. And I like what Jesus is doing here because it really is this truth and love moment where he stops beating around the bush and he just says, hey, buddy, you're not perfect. You do have lack. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And what is his response? He's disheartened. He's broken. And he walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And in this very gentle rebuke that Jesus gives this man, He is saying, here's what you lack. There is something at the center of your worship that until that is removed, you will never be able to follow me. And Jesus confronts it. He says, I know what's at the center of your worship. The man doesn't tell him, hey, I want to follow you, but I got a lot of stuff and I don't want to let that go. No, Jesus knows What is at the center of this man's worship? And he goes right at it and he says, you've got to go and you've got to get rid of it. And there's an invitation here for us to examine our own hearts and to identify what is truly at the center of our worship that is hindering our own obedience, that is hindering our own walk with God. Where do we need to invite the Holy Spirit into that process of conviction and repentance and grief to be led to the foot of Jesus to find grace? Well, Jesus presses in on that a little more because let's look at the reaction of the people that have been around. The man leaves, he turns back, he walks away, and Jesus turns back to the disciples that have witnessed this whole interaction. And he asked two questions, and these two questions are extremely important because I believe one of the the tricky parts of this passage is only applying it to wealth. And I don't think that's what's happening. And here's why. In verse 23, Jesus asks, he says, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And then you see, well, there it is, DJ, it's right there. I don't have wealth, so I'm good. Well, hang on there, partner. Verse 24, Jesus asks another question. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And what he just did is he removed that excuse. 
and he broadened the application. And yes, affluence and wealth, it makes you comfortable and it can trick you into thinking that you are self-sufficient and therefore that you can be self-saving. But the reality is, any idol that we put at the center of our worship is an idol amongst idols. And it's a false gospel that's preached alongside many false gospels. Which is why then Jesus says in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And, and there have been many creative interpretations to this passage. When I was in Israel several years ago, uh, we had a, a tour guide that was with us uh, along the way. And he stopped and he said, okay, look at this door. And it was this big door. And in this big door was a little mini door. And he said, you know that verse when Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle? He says, well, this mini door is the eye of the needle. And so it's really inconvenient that people would have to go and with their camels and all the luggage, and they'd have to take all the luggage off their camels and get their camel through the little door. And it's super hard and super challenging. That's not what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying exactly what Jesus is saying. And what he's saying is, friends, it is impossible. Not it's hard. Not it's just mildly inconvenient, but it is like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It cannot be done. That whatever that thing that you have that is over Christ, as long as that is at the center of your worship, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. As long as you cling to anything that isn't Jesus, you will lack everything. But here's the good news. And the good news is our realization of our own hopelessness, when it's looked at through the gospel, is actually a doorway into hope when we realize how hopeless and broken, how depraved we are, that the gospel actually says, yes, that is correct, but here's your hope. So it continues, verse 26. The disciples were exceedingly astonished. They didn't know what to do with Jesus' response, and they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, nobody. Nobody. It's impossible. Don't care who you are, what you've done, what you have. It cannot be done. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, what Jesus says to this man when he says you lack one thing, it's not a criticism. It really is not. It wasn't designed to make this man realize anything other than you can't do it. It's not a judgment that Jesus was passing. It's a doorway that he was trying to open for him. It was the invitation to say, hey, stop making it about you. 
Because if you make it about you, you will always lack. But make it about God. Because with God, all things are possible. Stop believing in your own power because when you believe in your own power, you will always have lack. But see Jesus and the power that he has. Stop seeing as Jesus as, as just a teacher and start learning what it means to have a relationship with him as the sacrifice lamb, as the picture of righteousness, as the bringer of forgiveness, as the overcomer of death. This would be a great place to close this passage and this sermon. But Peter talks. <laughs> so let's deal with it. So Peter... Jesus just said, hey, listen, with man's impossible, for God, nothing's impossible. You have to give it all away. Jesus, or Peter says, hey, Jesus, like what we did? <laughs> Peter, my man, what are we doing? You just, you just listened to Jesus saying, hey, man, it's not about you. And then you come away and your takeaway from this is, hey, look at me. But Jesus, again, very graciously, very gently responds, and he says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Again, Jesus isn't just speaking to Peter. He's speaking to all of us. And this is not in any way, shape, or form a health and wealth gospel. I don't know about you, but a hundred children does not sound appealing to me. <laughs> but what Jesus is doing is he's saying, listen... When you begin to have an accurate view of your identity and when you begin to have an accurate view of who Jesus is, that what happens is that every sacrifice that you then make, every area of your life that then becomes uncomfortable, every surrender that you ever encounter, every confession that you ever give, every act of forgiveness that you seek, what happens is God will increase in your life. As the Holy Spirit continues to work, we then become blessed not out of anything that we have done, but we become blessed with the kingdom of God, with the family of God, with the love and the goodness and the mercy and the riches of God. And so church, the question is not, what must we do to inherit eternal life? The question that I would challenge us all to wrestle with each and every day is how are we going to respond to the eternal life that has been offered to us through Jesus. Let's pray.
God, we come to you, God, with open hands. Asking, God, that you would reveal to us, even now in this moment, God, with wherever we are, whatever uh, is going on in our life outside of here, God, whatever we have brought in with us, God, that you would, through the power of your spirit, God, that you would reveal to us that which is at the center of what we hold the most important. God, would you reveal to us the false gospels that we have held on as truth? God, whether that's the false gospel of our own power, of our own wisdom, of our own wealth, whether that's the false gospel of our guilt, our shame, God, might we see you for who you truly are. God, might we see you as the potter that took the shards. God, that took what was unlovely and God, that crafted it into something beautiful. And God, might we hold fast to the promise of your word. God, that where our sin has increased, God, your grace has increased even more. Through Jesus, we have hope and resurrection and restoration. It's only in his name that we pray. Amen.